I look over here, I am bored. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I fall asleep, yeah. wake me up. If I fall asleep, this is something I do. <laughs> if I get up and walk away, I'm not bored. <laughs> I just had too much coffee. So we, we go about an hour. Okay. Um, but if you're sick of it, 10 minutes in, you can leave too. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> that door's locked. <laughs> I saw him locked. Yeah, I locked. Yeah. Well, we didn't lock it one time and a patient came in. I think she wanted to pay for a crown or something. She did. Well, that, well, that's, that's what, worth stopping for. That's worth stopping for. So yeah, we yeah. stopped all production. Yeah, yeah. Took my payment. She, exactly. Did she have a credit card in her hand? I think <laughs> she had a, I had my ma- machine right here, ready to go. <laughs> like old you don't school. have it on your phone. That little, that little thing. You We're thinking in. about it. I should yeah. do that. The square. Yeah. Yeah, I think the square. People do that. Yeah, it's um. I have mixed feelings about it. Okay. I think it's efficient. Like in I the like office. It. Yeah, people go in, you know, into the room, into the operatory, and take the payment. I mean, it's is that it's bad? Probably okay. No, I, right? I, I, I'm doing more of that because I think that what we're experiencing is practices get larger. There's not enough physical space to kind of have a you know consultation area where right. you can do four consultations at once. So if yeah. you have the op space, it's kind of good to get that done. Yeah. And I'm a big believer if you can prepay for our entire treatment plan, you don't have to schedule appointments based on you know money. That's the best yeah. thing in the world. You can schedule them back in the app now. They before they leave, the assistant's got the next appointment scheduled. I feel like patients yeah. are more satisfied with the work when they prepay. It's almost like when they don't pay, all of a sudden they hate what you did. Hey, that's uh, that's been going on for 45 years that since I started so dental school. That blows my mind. I, I mean, have you ever noticed the shade's always better when it's paid? Oh my gosh, it blows my mind. When yeah. it's not paid, they're like, well, you yeah, know, I think this is a quarter shade <laughs> off here. I wonder why. Because they value it more. I think so. I think psychologically. I think, I think well, they justify it in their own minds. Like, uh-huh. well, it's paid for. I think if they're not paying, they can't say, well, I'm a deadbeat. Yeah. You know, they're saying, well, there's something wrong with it. Never quite fit right. It didn't hurt before, but now it really hurts. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah exactly. So I'll take half H- off. Human nature. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you want to start us That's off? Fine. Yeah. yeah um, welcome to Tooth Face, the podcast, episode 26. Yeah, 26. Wow. Can't believe it. Um, we're here with Pat Houlihan from the Houlihan Group. And... Pat is a practice broker, transition consultant. Um, did I miss anything else? You're also an instructor at U of D. Yeah, instructor at U of D. I'm also state director for the Michigan Dental Association Forensic Identification Team. Wow. No way. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So we'll talk about that for yeah. sure, too. <laughs> um, so is that called forensic odontology? Well, yeah. You know, it's not, you can't be a forensic dentist. Okay. You can be a forensic odontologist. And I'm saying that jokingly because I didn't coin the phrase. That's just sure. what's known among the field. I think it gives us a little greater stretcher. But yeah, we're forensic <laughs> dentists. What's an odontologist? Is it a- you know, that's kind of a, at least when I was in school, that was kind of more of an, a European term for dentists. Okay. So, um, I, I, as I said, I, I have no problem. Forensic dentist, forensic odontologist, whatever you want to call it. But um, it, it's been an interesting, interesting journey. Are you going to crime sites? Are they called? And- Sometimes. I mean, w- 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 the majority of the stuff that I do as the MDA fit director is mass casualty planning disasters for, or mass disaster casualty planning for tornadoes, uh, terrorist attacks, uh, plane crashes, things like that, and setting up the uh, um, infrastructure should something like that occur. Part of the process also, which I do the majority of the physical work, is on unidentified remains. So if there's a victim of a homicide or a plane crash or a lot of fires, um, things like that, where they can't identify the victim visually, or possibly fingerprints are not it. You can't get fingerprints, and DNA takes a long time. It's very expensive. They'll call us in, and we'll do that identification. Obviously, you need anti-mortem or prior death records to do that, but quite honestly, all of us are dentists. You know, if you have a set of radiographs that are fairly current from two years ago, three years ago, and then we take another set, and you compare those, that's as accurate as a fingerprint or DNA um, as you can get. So that's the majority of the physical work I do. Fortunately, we've only been called out once in the capacity of mass casualty planning, and that was during COVID. If you remember where <clears throat> there were a lot of unclaimed remains and they were, you know, showed them, you know, sitting up in chairs in hospitals and overflowing and things like that. We were deployed for that because our group is also charged with handling those remains. Obviously, we weren't doing identifications. We knew who they were. But we were taking possession of those remains and trying to repatriate them with families and, and things like that because the hospitals couldn't handle it. And a lot of the a lot of the city morgues couldn't handle it either. 
Well, how'd you get involved in this? You know, it's interesting. Um, long story, but uh, a good friend of mine from dental school and I, after 9-11, we felt like we wanted to do something to give back. At that point in time, we both were well into our 40s and joining the military was not an option, even the military reserve. They didn't really want us. So we started exploring what could we do to give back, you know, to our to our fellow man, our profession. And we kind of came upon a fellow named Alan Warnick, who was sort of the father of um, forensic identification here after the Flight 255 disaster mm -hmm. in 1987. Um, and we kind of got involved that way. Now we've both kind of progressed up the hierarchy of the administration. Uh, we're kind of more in charge of that now. Uh, so that's kind of how that all, all happened. And it's actually been a pretty, a very rewarding career. We spend a lot of time. I've been to a lot of continuing education. We go almost every year to somewhere, Seattle, New Orleans, wherever it is, and take courses in not just identification, but would be you know fingerprinting, uh, testifying at trials, um, things along those lines. Have you ever testified in yeah, a trial? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's it's fortunate. Mm -hmm. There's not too much in the way of contention as far as is somebody who you say they are right um that occasionally happens but most of it has to do with um uh, testifying is is it has to do with okay can you tell us with i wouldn't say 100 percent certainty what is the chances that it's somebody else so right. it's usually through depositions and things like that okay so i haven't had to you know it's not the you know Perry Mason before your time, but it's not the NCIS type of thing where we're, you know, in front of a jury very often, but okay. we do, we do do That's that. That's what I'm picturing, of course, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess that would be the fun part. We haven't, we haven't, yeah. we haven't quite got there yet. So is this something that a dentist can do for an income stream or is this more like a passion project? You know, there is. And, and I will tell you, that's not my role or nor my desire, but yeah, it, you know, you become an expert witness in these situations and um for example something that i don't particularly like to do but child abuse is one of the <coughs> major times where you would testify mm -hmm. um and there's it's some very controversial issues with regards to bite marks uh, child abusers um do some do do certain things and biting their victims is one it's also sexual abuse so there's a large controversy is can we identify somebody based on their bite marks the common feeling is we can no longer say with certainty it was that person mm -hmm. what we can do is eliminate that person we can say that we there's no way this person was the biter or was the perpetrator of the act um so there's value in that also what's coming up now is age estimation with regards to uh, you know immigrants crossing the border and are these people qualified for benefits so we can tell with a fairly you know um, high degree of certainty within a couple of years, particularly in that 18, 19, 20, 17, 16 year age bracket, how likely it is that somebody is under 18 or over 18. So yeah, you would get paid to do that kind of thing. And some of the expert witnesses might make 10 or $20,000 a day. Um, that's not something that interests me. Yeah. I, I'm more into the, um, the giving back portion. But yeah, you, you, you can do it. I mean, um, when we do identifications at morgues, you know, we do a lot in Wayne County, Ingham County, Genesee County, you're paid, but usually by the time you pay for your gas, and if you certainly take a time away from the office, you're, 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 you're like losing a, money. You're losing. Like yeah. a juror is yeah. paid. Yeah. 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 Well, it's a little better than that, okay. but um, it's, it's certainly not, I mean, worth the effort. Yeah. Um, um, it, you're doing it because you want to give back. The way it works is that if somebody passes away and they don't have a death certificate signed, they have to go to a medical examiner's office to get a death certificate. And that person, whatever their condition of their remains, cannot be released to the family until they're positively identified. And it's been eliminated that it's a homicide victim. So you have to identify them. So that's kind of why I do it. So in these high-profile cases, and you know, I won't mention any specific ones, but you would know them where somebody is found let's say it's been missing for two months it's important that you get those remains back to that family as soon as you can you don't want to have to wait for four or six weeks to get dna back to have to say here's your loved one you can get back right. and it's them so we're able to go in and do that pretty quickly and then they're able to release those remains to the family a lot of times we'll do these cases at 10 o'clock at night and by 12 o'clock we're calling the funeral home so that the body can be released 
How are you taking the axe price on these? We're using a, a device called a Nomad. Okay, I've seen that. Which is yeah. portable. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, until very recently, it was not something you could use on the general public, but mm -hmm. obviously our patients are deceased. Um, yeah. You know, so that it wasn't a problem, but we have a couple of Nomad units that we use. Those are becoming popular. Yeah, mainstream. they are. Yeah. They are. And especially now we have a newer generation one. Uh, the old one, I used to be tired by the time I got to take on a full mouse mm -hmm. series. Uh, they're not that heavy. They're, they're actually quite easy to use. They, the, the quality of the radiograph is just as good as the ones we get in our office too. Right. So it's like digital. You have a laptop with oh, it. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. We have a laptop and you know, they're all entered in. You're able to pull up both sets right on there. A lot of times we'll have hard copies, especially nowadays. There's not everybody's digital. Um, also, too, we'll use information from progress notes. For example, if you haven't seen somebody in seven or eight years and you have radiographs from seven or eight years ago, if you have a set of progress notes to say we've done this restoration, this restoration, this restoration, you can kind of extrapolate where they're at. But you, you do need some hard evidence to say this is who it is. We have identified people by a single tooth, you know, based on tooth morphology and um, restorations, but we would obviously prefer more information than that. This is a really dumb question, but when you x-ray these deceased people, are you going back into dentrix? And how do you like, where do you put the x-rays? Do you have to protect their information still? Yeah. So, you know, that, no. No. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, you don't. So there's no like HIPAA thing. And, and we run across that if we have to get radiographs from, let's say it was one of your patients and, and it probably wouldn't be me, but it'd be a, an investigator or a state police officer or something like that would call you and say, we need dental records on Jessica Gall. And a lot of times we see the dentist will say, well, wait a minute, I need a HIPAA release. Well, the law is you do not. Once they're mm -hmm. deceased, there's no person to be violated. Okay. So um, anybody listening out there, if they get that request, please send us your x-ray so we don't mm -hmm. have to wait. But, um, you know, obviously they're held in confidence with us. The only people that see them are us and the medical examiner. Okay. So, so another question, just stemming off of that, um, if someone is, if you're investigating a crime and the person's alive and the law enforcement contacts you for records, can you hand those over without a HIPAA? It seems like it's law enforcement. Generally, yes. I mean, I, I mean, I. I would think you would. I don't and, know. And almost everybody does. Okay. Um, because a lot of times, what will happen is in, in the ch in the child abuse situation, the sexual abuse. Right. They'll get subpoenas. They'll say, "Okay, we okay. want to take models, let's say, of somebody, or a set of radiographs, or whatever." Um, that's typically done it's kind of i guess the jury's out as to how you know what the law reads but generally if as a dentist you were asked to provide those records and you didn't they would go get a subpoena and, and, and you could provide them. Mm -hmm. i don't think you're under any hipaa violation you if, couldn't if, get if you, sued later no i don't by, believe so okay at least that's the understanding that's what we go by no you can't right i mean that would be a shame if you did right yeah <laughs> it would be really you're trying terrible. to help yeah. law enforcement they sue you well and if you, right. if you have two sheriff's <clears throat> deputies show up at your office asking you for stuff you're tendency is to say okay here you go of course right. you're pooping your pants of course <laughs> you have it take everything yeah. yeah exactly yeah please get into my private office so the patients don't see you and you <laughs> right. leave the back door yeah. right well that was a fun little tangent i do have, yeah. <laughs> I, I do have one more question though so sure. i i do read things where a forensic odontologist registered a bite mark 30 years ago and then the sentence was reversed correct um is there still a controversy surrounding this profession? There is no longer a controversy, but what happened was is the criteria that we used to determine whether somebody, there's various terms for it, uh, possible biter, probable biter, um, you know, those are kinds of terminologies we used to use. There was a certain set of criteria uh, designed by the American Academy of Forensic Sciences that we used to do that. That whole thing was kind of turned around here about, 12, 14, 15 years ago, and that's what you're speaking of. Okay. So a lot of these people were released because what was used as evidence 15 years ago no longer would be considered evidence. I think a good corollary would be somebody that was convicted and then now DNA evidence exonerates them. It's just the rules have changed. Okay. So it's not like somebody misidentified a biter. And in most cases, um, I'm trying to decide if I want to say this, but... Um, I think in most cases, somebody who was convicted was guilty because it was, it was very seldom just on bite mark evidence alone. Okay. But because that was called into question, that's why a lot of those cases were released and overturned. A lot of those people were retried and convicted. Right back in. I think then your profession needs a PR agent because a lot of dentists think this is not like hokey pokey, but it's not as 
scientific as we want it to be. And I, I'm not a big proponent of bite mark science. Okay. I, um, I, my personal opinion is that, and I'll give a, a specific example. If I'm, if I, if you're a possible suspect and I can tell because I've seen your teeth, you have a full set of anterior teeth. If we have a bite mark that's missing six and 11 or seven and 10, it, that can't be you. Because obviously they're missing teeth. You didn't grow those in the next in the last two weeks, unless they were implants or something like that. But basically, we can eliminate you as a potential suspect. Okay, that's where I believe the value in this science is. Okay, so not, it's more, not, not it's in, more deduction. Yeah, yeah, and more eliminating mm -hmm. something. And if you think about it, in a sexual abuse case, you're usually dealing with what's called a closed population. In other words, there's six people in a household. You want to know who did it, or if any of them did it. And if you can eliminate four of those people, that makes the job a lot easier for law enforcement. Okay. So I guess my takeaway is if you're missing seven and 10, you're going to commit a crime, put a flipper in before you bite somebody and then go to court without the flipper. Absolutely. And if you commit a crime, go get some, just a few fillings. Yeah. different materials or, or, or definitely, before, you know, get your, get, yeah. get some avilaplasty on your, <laughs> yeah. on your teeth. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. I was yeah. Like, you oh, know, it's so. amazing. You guys, I, I never thought of that. That makes me even more convinced that bite mark <laughs> isn't a science. Is it isn't a science we should convict anybody. Or we're just very devious. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know. Um, I thought the same thing. I was like, well, let's just get a DO on a couple teeth. And it's so funny. We brought you in today because I want to know what practices are worth and how to buy a practice. And then, this has been an amazing 10 minute conversation on <laughs> bite marks. That's yeah. what's great about an unscripted podcast. Yeah. It can go anywhere. You know, I think too, and I will speak from somebody who's now kind of in charge of this for the state. This is good because we do need additional people. It's, it's, right. it's the type of thing that in a lot of cases, if you're a younger dentist like you and certain Jessica, you, you know, it's hard to take this time away. We're yeah. having a, a training in, in September where it's going to be a full day on a Wednesday at a community college and things like that. For me to do that now, or even when I was doing it 15 years ago, I was at a point in my career, no big deal. I just mm -hmm. canceled patients and went. If you're a younger dentist to do that and to pay your staff and all those other kinds of things, it becomes expensive. Or if you were to go to Seattle for a week to take some of these courses, um, you know, and stay in a hotel and eat out every night, mm -hmm. it, it's expensive. So um, any dentist who is interested or looks like something they'd be interested in, I'd, I'd love to talk to them. That's amazing. Yeah, and I think dentists should. I'm, I'm. I can't think of the word, but they should broaden their their horizons in dentistry. Um, it's, you know, it can be isolating to just be in your office every day, Extremely. and there are a lot of things you can do in this profession that aren't straight dentistry. And I will tell you that most people that I deal with on the forensic side will say, "This is the best thing I've done in dentistry." The most, you know, they'll say the continuing education I've taken with regards to forensics is way more fun than learning and out. And there's you a know, community how to do it, out there too. Diversify. That's the word I was looking for. They, people and, should diversify within and, their profession. And then our team, our, 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 our Michigan team, we have dentists, but we also have um, DNA specialists. We have mm -hmm. state police. We have emergency managers, you know, law enforcement, um, funeral directors. I mean, there's a whole group of people, which is has been very interesting to be introduced to other professions mm -hmm. but also it's it, i've become friends with with a lot of these people because as dentists we tend to associate with other dentists and and that's good but it's kind of nice to have like you said some diversity in what yeah. you do in your circles yeah yeah so would you feel comfortable giving out your contact information sure sure and 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 i think um i would give you my personal email which is p h o u l i h a n 11 at msn.com p hulahan 11 at msn.com Please feel free. Any questions you want to talk about it, whatever. I'd love to love to hear from you. And I have to say from personal experience, you're so good at getting back on emails and phone calls. <laughs> Some brokers, not you. Um, it's like two weeks. You <laughs> well, we got two good ones. Here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so let's change gears. Um, so we were first introduced because you had a potential client that was right. selling. It kind of fell through. Right. Um, but I had such a good feeling talking to you. I think you built your post-clinical career on integrity and honesty, and it really shows through. That that was my sole focus, you know, in, in, in total disclosure. Dentistry was very good to me. It was a great profession, both contentment-wise, fulfillment, and economically. So when I started the second career, I, I went in with some very specific um, goals. And those were that I wasn't going to participate in anything that wasn't tr a true win-win 
for both sides. I mean, even though traditionally in Jessica will second this, what we do, we typically represent the seller, mm-hmm. and by law we do that. I really feel that my role was to represent the integrity of the deal, yeah. and that unless this is going to be a win for both sides, it's it's not a successful transition in mm-hmm. my mind. It's got to be successful the day you start it, the day you finish it, and three years later. I have a famous saying: I, I don't want to have to drive by the office three years from now and hold the coat up over my face <laughs> because I was involved in that transition. So I, I try really, really hard to to put the integrity of the deal ahead of everything else. And it shows. Um, well, thank you. When did you leave clinical dentistry? Three years. Well, now three years, three and a half years ago. Oh, so recently. Yes. yes. Okay. But he was doing this. Both, I've been doing this for 22 yeah, years. Both yeah, both jobs um, Yeah. at the same time. And it had gotten to the point where it was about half and half, but it was like mm-hmm. six days a week. And I was getting, not getting any younger. Um, so, you know, and I had an associate who really wanted to take over. It was kind of like the perfect marriage the perfect time I, you know i miss i miss some things about clinical dentistry um i usually tell older dentists that you won't miss not doing that next crown or that next deal composite but you will miss your staff you're going to miss your patients the relationships you had with them and i do i still do it now i i spend some time i still do some um work in my office not dental work but i still do some independent medical exams for insurance companies and things like that on occasion so i spend a fair amount of time there at least once a month or so and i'm, I'm able to visit with patients and staff but um it, it's been good it's actually been good what was your motivation 22 years ago to go part-time on you both know, that's interesting um i always unlike a lot of our colleagues i and i think jessica's more on my line I always enjoyed the business side of dentistry. Me too. Most of our colleagues did not. I mean, you know, one number one complaint I hear when I talk to somebody selling their practice, I can't stand that administrative stuff anymore. So I always was interested in that. And because of that, even early on, I was helping classmates buy practices and things like that. And as I did that more and more, I kind of felt like there was a need in the marketplace for somebody that understood the dentist perspective. Um, the thing that I think sometimes brokers who are non-dentists or transition specialists who are non-dentists lack is that understanding that a dental practice is not a commodity. It is something very, very personal to us dentists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of, it's a lot of times it's our identity, you know, it's, it's, it's who we are. So it's not, we're not selling an old beat up old car. I mean, it may be a beat up old car, but to that dentist, it sure is not. Mm-hmm. And being able to understand both sides of that transaction was something that I felt was really necessary, was missing. And that's why I kind of got involved in it. Um, I had a dental school classmate, quite honestly, that went to law school as soon as he got out of dentistry and was doing this. He's now doing this over on the west side of the state. Mike Carl, I'll give him, a, uh, give him his Wait, due. Wait, he left dental school and went right to law school? Yes. Yes, he did. Oh, my God. Immediately. And Mike then, Carl? Yeah, Mike okay. Carl. Does he, uh, who's he with? Is Veritas okay. is the name of the company. Yep. Um, and Mike's over near Portage and that kind of thing on the west side of the state. Um, but Mike started doing this very early on. And I contacted Mike. I said, look, I'd like to do some of this. What do you suggest? He kind of mentored me through the first couple of years of it and was very instrumental in kind of getting it getting it going. Um, and like I said, it's been very fulfilling. Um, at this point, or the last maybe 10 years of my clinical practice, obviously the transition side was much more fulfilling than, than the dental side. I mean, I'm, yeah. Jessica, I'm sure will second this. There's, there's nothing quite like effectuating a transition where everybody at the end is happy and they're all, you know, coming out and giving you a hug and, you know, and you talk to yeah. them six months later and I go, geez, this is the best thing I ever did. I should have done this sooner. Yeah, yeah I hear that, that a lot. Yeah, yeah, me too. But I, I agree. I like what you said about it has to be a good deal for everyone because I feel very strongly about that too. And, and during the transition, things can get stressful. I'm in the middle of one right now. Yes, and they get, <laughs> last night. <laughs> I hate like I dare I say heated, but sometimes yes. you know there's this um, it there's a stressful element in there, and then there's an emotional component. Absolutely, for sure with the seller because they're, you know, it's like kind of a melancholy feeling. You sell your practice, and it's like your blood, sweat, and tears, and then someone else. Is, is walking away with that. They're moving into your house. It's, and it's weird. And they're going to change the paint colors. Yep. And they're going to change maybe the way the rooms are configured. I mean, I, yeah. and I'm using the analogy. They might change some of the philosophies, um, mm-hmm. you know, going digital or, uh, you know, paperless. And, yeah. and, and, and 
that's something we can talk about, but that's something I don't advocate anybody do when they first buy a practice. Don't make any changes People immediately. People do it, though. Oh, my People gosh. People do. Oh, and you know, I swear I used to say over my dead body, but I'm still alive, so mm -hmm. they did it anyways. But, um, yeah. yeah, I think that you need to have the fit correct between the coming dentist and leaving dentist. And the best thing is I usually have a saying is if it's the worst god-awful pink you've ever saw, don't repaint it for six months at least because yeah. – all the patients and staff have been coming to that office, and if it's that ugly pink, they're fine with it. They're okay with the it. The only one yeah. that's not fine with it is you, the buyer. But, right. But, but yes, it, it has to be. If it's not a win-win proposition for both sides, it's not good for anybody. No. It, because the bottom line is basically what you're selling in a dental practice is goodwill. There is equipment, but Jessica, <laughs> second this, most of it's junk. I mean, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's worthless if you took it out of that dental office. So it's all goodwill. And unless you can transfer that goodwill, um, bad things happen. And if somebody is unhappy after the transaction, people will ask me all the time. They'll say, well, wait a minute. If I sell it and I get my money, why would I care? Well, if you sell it for a price that's way too high, that buyer's going to be unhappy, which means when that patient comes in and the tooth is chipped or the crown is broken or the filling is cracked, are they going to say to that patient, you know... Dr. Gall was a great dentist, and I very seldom have seen any of this stuff. And you know what? I'll take care of that for you and no charge. Or are they going to say, you know, I've been finding that more and more of that stuff Dr. Gall did stunk. It was <laughs> terrible. Yeah. yeah, what a hack. And, yeah. you, you know, I, I mean, so that's the goodwill part. It, it affects mm -hmm. both sides. And the vice versa, if a, if a buyer overpay i mean say so if a buyer underpays mm -hmm. the seller's gonna you know he's gonna see the patient at the supermarket buying tomatoes and say yeah i rued the day i sold it to her i mean it's just that the goodwill is continuing it's ongoing even after the it's, sale that's such a good point and i always tell people it's like getting you know getting a deal air quotes you know ten thousand you know twenty thousand dollars off i actually or, say 50 is way. that worth <laughs> trashing the goodwill no you know, if they're asking this amount and it's a reasonable amount, just give them what they're asking. Right. Let's all be friendly, and that's gonna that's gonna put more money in your pocket later, and more positive things are gonna come your way because of that. And you're gonna be happier. That's a concept that people. Yeah. Yeah, that's a concept that people really have a hard time with. I think in any transaction, you know, I do a lot of real estate. Same thing. Um, and just, at least real estate is a little bit. I mean. Once you are selling a commodity, it's a not house. as emotional. It yeah. is always emotional, but at least it's. I mean, it's not 100 percent goodwill. It's not as emotional though. Well, well yeah. but dentistry is. Ve I mean, dentistry dental is. practice is very much. You know, and and uh, you know, Jessica and I see all manners of practices: very small ones, very big ones, practices that are extremely up to date, some that you know are not. <laughs> and and you know, and we would look at that and go, mm, you know, but to that dentist. That is their baby. Yeah. I always say it's like the it's like the redheaded stepchild of the family in a lot of cases. You know, they can say, and sometimes they will, when you're talking to them, yeah, I know I'm not up to date. I know this and know that. As soon as a buyer says that, you think they you know, stabbed that seller in the yeah. chest. Uh, you know, don't say anything about my kids. And I think that's what our role in this is, right. is to kind of mediate that so we're not going to the, the seller and saying, well, look, the buyer said, you know, you haven't painted the office and, and you're, you know, you're using materials that are 20 years out of date. We're going to try and, oh, I'm sorry, okay. we're going to try and mediate that conversation so that the goodwill is continued. Right. So yeah, nobody wants to hear what they should have done. We, we all know, you know, we're all aware that we should have done things maybe a little better or differently, but you know, that's, that's not what anyone needs to hear. You know, it's my contention because I do consulting as well. This is that after you've been out, after you've owned your practice for five, six, seven years, we know everything we should be doing. Yeah. The role of a consultant is to make you do it, is to make you implement it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, like you said, we know, everybody knows, you know, I know what I need to do to go from 500,000 to a million. If they're not at a million, that really means they're not willing to do what they know they need to do. Yeah. So when a young dentist is looking at a practice to buy, um, they look at maybe location, what insurances, what should we be looking at for the value of the practice? Yeah, I, I think number one, first, first one through 10 should be the fit. You need to have something where the fit makes sense. And, and I'll give you a, a very obvious example. If you're buying, if I'm buying a practice from Dr. Gall and she is somebody who does IV sedation, third molar extractions, all the ortho cases, 
um, is very aggressive in her treatment planning. And, and aggressive may be a, the wrong connotation, but it favors more full mouth reconstruction and things like that. And, and I can't bring myself to do anything more than a single tooth, you know, fixed rest, fixed, you know, prosthetics. That's probably not a good fit. So if that isn't there, then I think you, you it's, don't even go any further from that. Then I think you need to look at what drives practice value. And, and I guess with, with another expert here, I, I'll be careful how I say it. <laughs> but what drives practice value is profitability. That's the single biggest factor. So you need to look at profitability. Now, once you determine that profitability, and profitability is more than just what your tax return says. I mean, there are things that we, as dentists, we expense, and an obvious one is depreciation. That's not a true expense. That's actually profit to the dentist. But there's a multitude of other ones. But once you determine that number, then the value is based off of a multiple of that number. That multiple changes by what you just talked about, desirability, which is location. Is it, you know, digital um does it is it up to date how desirable is that practice for a potential buyer and that's what you should be looking for so is this number called ebitda yes um but i will tell you that ebitda is a number that's the big number or big word right now ebitda means different things to different people it means different things to us dentists than it does to for example a corporate dental group ebitda in a corporate dental group is they're going to deduct the cost of the doctors, and that's going to be their EBITDA number. So in, a, in a, an example, if a practice is doing a million dollars, is netting $500,000, and they would have to pay an associate dentist $250,000 to work that practice, the, the DSO or the corporate group's EBITDA number is going to be two fifty. So a million minus the 500000 overhead minus the two fifty you'd have to pay the dentist is two fifty. If... We, are, as individual dentists, we're looking at that number EBITDA. Our EBITDA would be 500000 because we're going to kind of put our own salary into that. So we're an owner-user. Yes. Yeah. And, and I don't know what you found, but I, I'm starting to get a pretty clear sense that the non-dentist handpiece-driven EBITDA now is pretty close to 40 or 50%. Mm-hmm. So you know, half of what a dentist makes is the stuff they have to put up with by owning the practice. So explain that. So if EBITDA is 40 to 50%, how does that translate to practice price after you find out the EBITDA? Yeah. Um, do you want to talk specifics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. Um, um, and, and Jessica, chime in if you disagree. Okay. But uh, right now in today's market, um, practices are being sold to individual dentists somewhere between 1.5 to 2 times true EBITDA. Um the corporate groups are paying somewhere between three and four times their EBITDA. What it basically works out to is they're paying a little bit more than an individual dentist would pay. Now, in a corporate situation, there's some factors under which that make that, that mitigate that. They're not going to pay you, and you and I had talked earlier today, um, one of the numbers we see or one of the comments we get all the time is, well, what percentage of a year's gross is a practice selling for. What I will tell you is what I found in my research. Uh, a few years ago, I went back and looked at my last 50 sales. The average practice sold at that time for 67% of one year's gross revenues. But I will tell you, out of the 50 sales, the range was 48% of one year's gross revenues to 102% of one year's gross revenues. So the, it was driven by EBITDA. The numbers tend to work out as a percentage. So what I'm getting at is that you'll see sometimes we'll see an offer, we'll see offers from an individual dentist on a practice that is 70%, 75%, 80% of one year's gross revenues. A corporate buyer will come in and say, well, I'll give you 110% one year's gross revenues, but they're not giving you 110% up front. There are strings attached, holdbacks and things like that. Do you find that the 48% to 102% is increasing over the years, like 10 years ago is lower? No, it all has to do with EBITDA. Okay. So, so, so if you have a practice that's grossing a million dollars and netting $200,000, that's worth a lot less than a practice that's grossing a million dollars and netting $400,000. Okay. That's where the percentage comes in. Are you finding dentists are lowering their W-2 salary to increase their profits to make their EBITDA higher? No, because, and I'm sure Jessica does this too, when I look at a tax return, you know, I've looked at so many of these things over the years, I, I mean, I can tell you pretty accurately what they're making. Okay. We know where the things are and we can determine what that is. So even if they tried to do that, 
um, it, it doesn't usually work. I mean, I have a famous saying, um, and I just went through it this week, where um, somebody said, well, I, I, I looked at the production by procedure reports, and then I looked at the tax returns, and the numbers don't add up. I said, look, there's a really clear way to determine what they made. Look at the tax return. People don't lie on their tax returns because nobody says, okay, I'm going to take the next three years, pay a lot more in taxes because I'm not taking the deductions. Right. I'm not inflating it higher. If anything, it's the other way. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Most yeah. people don't land their taxes. No, or certainly not to the detriment of a future buyer. <laughs> right. But if you lie on your taxes, that could burn you either way. We're well, going to prison. Or yeah. And, you know, and that. <laughs> That's always a bad thing. Yeah. I got but, a good price for my practice, but I spend the next 20 years right. in jail. But it is about profitability. Now, the only thing that I, you know, put a flag on when you said was the, the, the multiple of EBITDA, I'm finding it's higher for the for the corporate groups, like like a six yes. to seven, well, eight, sometimes. It, it, you know what I'm seeing is, it depends upon their definition. It um, does. Their 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 goal is to, and, and this is probably a topic for another six hours somewhere. But their goal is to buy you at something. Let's say three, four, five, six, depending upon their definition of mm -hmm. EBITDA, and then turn around and they and understand every large dental group except for a couple are going to turn around and sell their group of 30 or 40 practices yep. to the next group. So they're hoping to buy you at six times EBITDA and turn around and sell it to, for 12. And the higher the EBITDA, the higher the multiple. Correct. In a corporate setting. Yeah. It, 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 you know, it, 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 it's also true in a private setting, but it's almost like there's two competing mm -hmm. sets of value out here. And right now, the corporates, what I'm finding is five, six, seven, eight years ago, a corporate would look at just about anything. But now they're saying, you know what? I, I just have a good friend in Texas that's a principal in one down there and is actually operating in Michigan now. He said, you find anything over a million five, netting X, we'll talk. And I, I keep pointing out, there's just not that many mm -hmm. of those out there. So uh, they're being more discriminating but paying a higher price. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I would. And I think everyone's looking for the same thing. That's oh, absolutely. The yeah. Why do you think they're backing off? Why do you think eight years ago they're buying everything? Now it's less. Uh, they were committed to increasing market share okay now they're incre committed to increasing EBITDA so that when they increase EBITDA then they can turn around and sell it to the next the next group I mean mm -hmm. that's there, there's a, a very uh, defined path these things go the principles in these groups and understand these days the principles are not dentists um, they're MBAs out of University of Chicago you know that kind of thing or Wharton School of Business they take a reasonable salary and then they're in for a percentage of that company so when that even when that practice, when that DSO is sold for $60 million, they might be taking $10 million bucks off the table. So they have a tremendous incentive to increase EBITDA at almost every other, every other you know, uh, in, the, in lieu of everything else. Um, so they really want to increase that EBITDA, and then they're going to increase their multiple. So there's a lot of things, and I'm sure we could compare, compare notes, but yeah. there's a lot of things that are going on in the corporate world that, that – Again, because they're not dentists, they kind of look at it and go, okay, you know, we need to do more of this regardless of whether they have patients to do it and you know, things like well, that. Well, there has to be a limit, right? There's, there's only so many big groups that can buy 30 practices, 60 practices, to where there's going to be a trend where there's one Walmart of dentistry and a bunch of solo guys. There is going to, in my prediction, now, and I have no problem, as I said, I'm old and unfiltered now. <laughs> um, you know, I'll say what I think. I think this is a giant game of musical chairs that right now the music is playing and there's a lot of people running around outside the circle. When this all happens and this consolidates and it's already starting, there's going to be a lot of people left without chairs. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure you're seeing this too. There's a lot of individual dentists that are out there trying to play this game Yeah, that are trying to put together five, six, seven practices. Package them up. Yep. Yeah. And my, my advice to them is be very, very careful. Make sure you're geographically in a given area. You know, you're not, you don't have one in Pinconning and then one in mm -hmm. Portage. DSOs aren't interested in that. That's not where they make their money. They want them clustered together uh, as much as possible. And you don't want a practice that's doing, I have one group that I'm dealing with right now. They have a practice that's doing $100,000 and they have another one that's doing a million six. It's going to be pretty tough to sell those together as a package. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got to be careful. But um, when you're playing this game, you got to realize that you're kind of that little fish swimming around the mouth of a shark. You know, you're trying to get your piece of the puzzle. The sharks are the large corporate groups. And when this music stops, you could end up with 10, 12 practices, maybe not that many, five, six on your own, 
that then you have to make profitable. So my advice to the dentists, individual dentists that are doing this, is when you buy a practice, make sure it's profitable or in your scheme of things, whether you're going to incorporate it in your own or incorporate in another, that it's profitable on its own so that if at the end of the day you can't turn around and sell this to a DSO, it's still something that you want to have. Yeah, and, and don't you think also that things are changing? And Vince, you too. Like, I talk to, you know, Dennis all the time, so do you. And they say, I'm, I want to sell this. This is the plan. I'm going to sell it to a DSO. And part of me thinks, okay, well, you better hurry up because yeah. this might – it might not be going on like it is going on right now in five years. In we don't, two years. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, it, there's there's a bubble. There's a, it, it is there's definitely a bubble. a bubble. Yeah, so so people who are, are waiting to do something, it's like, well, if that's your intention, maybe do it now. I feel that way about, like, points. You know, anytime you get points for anything, it's like, you don't know if they're going to change the no. rules. And they so, can. So use them now. They yeah. can. You they know, can do whatever they want. There's an adage in investment that says the average investment bubble lasts 17 months. The average soap bubble lasts 17 seconds. We don't know how long the average no. this bubble is here, but I agree with Jessica 100%. This is a bubble. Mm -hmm. And these people are all competing for a, a, a huge pool of money. And, and, and just to talk in general terms, a lot of people may not understand why they're able to pay these large you know, multiples of EBITDA. Well, if you think about it, when you invest in General Motors, the PE ratio, the price to earnings ratio is in the 20s. Well, maybe not General Motors these days, but uh, in general, you buy a stock, the PE ratio, in other words, the price to earnings ratio is, which is a multiple, is about 20, 22, 24, 26. Well, in dental practices, these people with money are sitting out there and saying, can I afford to pay 12 times a PE of 12? Yeah, they can. As dentists, we look at this and say, wait a minute, my practice is grossing two million bucks, is netting a million. Why is somebody going to somebody down the road? Because they're not going to do this for an individual practice, but why is somebody going to take my group of five and give me 10, 12, 15 million bucks? What Jessica and I think are saying is, is that we don't know if they will mm -hmm. two, three, four years ago. Yeah. Right now it's being done. And I'll give you something on the other side. I was involved, I think about three years ago now, on one where it was a DSO that had bought a series of practices, four of them. And they paid about, the deal was for about $10 million. It ended up being about six, I believe, up front in, in cash, and the rest was over time, and there were all kinds of other factors involved. Well, it imploded because they didn't choose right. They were trying to increase their upfront, you know, their, their, their gross line, top line revenue to mm -hmm. get another tranche of, you know, uh, private equity funds, and when that failed, they had to sell them, and I sold them for them. They were sold for $500,000. So somebody took a $5.5 million hit. Wait, the whole, each one individually sold, or the whole group sold? The whole group for $500,000. Yeah. So let me back this up. They bought four practices at what price? Uh, well, $10 million stated, $6 million in cash. And they could only sell all four together at $500,000? Because they had, there had been so many problems. They were losing money. Can and you, they probably had equity in this DSO. Oh, my gosh. Equity, so, um Theoretically, no. Yeah. Well, they it, it was, okay. it, what they did have is the seller owned the properties that the um, practices were in. Okay, so, so they that, were leasing. That was his so they they, they were leasing at an exorbitant amount of money. Okay. Yeah, so, I had a similar situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. You know, I, I, as mm -hmm. I'm sitting there working on this deal, I'm thinking, how can they afford to take this kind of hit? And when I asked, they said, how can we afford not to? Right. You know, we're losing money. we got to dump this. We See, for us, us yeah. we'd be, you know, we'd be living in a, you know, a refrigerator box on the side of the freeway oh, yeah. afterwards. <laughs> for them. They'd be on down by the river. Exactly. They just don't have that problem. And that's, that's the difficulty for us mm -hmm. individual dentists to compete with them. They're large enough and financially backed enough that they can do this kind of stuff. You had asked me earlier today about, DSOs or corporate groups paying a large multiple, well, they can afford to do that because if it doesn't work out, so what? They got another 90 or 100, or in the case of Heartland Dental, the largest 1,599 other practices. You know, they can afford to take a hit on a practice where if that's the only one you own or one of five, it's a huge problem for you. Now, having said this, I think you may agree with me, one of the, my big predictors of the future also is, is that a dentist, an individual dentist, is going to have a very tough time in a suburban area with a lot of competition, owning a single practice and being profitable. Agreed. You're either going to have to be very big or multiple offices. Go yeah. ahead. I, <laughs> no, I agree 100%. I yeah. think, well, I think a dentistry is very expensive. Well, can you explain? And the overhead is high. <clears throat> explain that. So like a few sentences ago, you said 
dentists who are trying to own multiple offices are having trouble competing with the big fish in the in purchasing of practices but, so explain it because i'm a solo dentist and by right. myself am i gonna have trouble competing owning only one office and being profitable you know vince i know a little bit about your office and I think as, 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 as dentistry goes, you're going to be as insulated as anybody out there. Um, what we can't predict is 100% of the future. Sure. I think you are going to be insulated for a long, long time. What I'm talking about is somebody, and I'll use myself as an example. I was bread and butter. You know, I did some, you know, I did some six laminate cases, but that wasn't my everyday thing. Um, I was in Plymouth, Michigan. There were a lot of dentists right around me. There was three other ones right in my complex. You took insurance? Took insurance. Okay. Yeah. Um, didn't participate. I participated with Delta, mm -hmm. but uh, no PPOs or anything like that. But that is the type of thing that 10 years from now, with that much competition, would have been a tough thing to sustain. And I do believe that an individual dentist is going to have to be very, very savvy business-wise and, and very, very selective in what they take, what they don't take, how they set their practice up how they handle patient relations. That's one thing we have over the DSOs. We can control patient relations better mm -hmm. than they can. Um, you're going to have to be that, or you could be forced into a situation where you're non-competitive, and this is one of my big fears for the profession, is there's going to be a lot of those people, like you said, the bubble's going to burst, and they can't. there aren't going to be individual buyers out there. I'm already seeing a less... Amount of individual buyers, there's going to be less individual buyers out there for the eventual transition of that practice. So they're going to have to sell off for pennies on the dollar to some DSO that's going to incorporate them into another office. And that's something um, I have seen very recently on the on the upswing. Um, I spoke with two brokers last week. I won't say who they are, and they said What's they, it mean? Have, <laughs> they have they each have several mid-sized practices, as do I, that are not moving. What's mid-size? Um, you know, between 500 and a million. Okay. A year, I'd say. Um, and, and this is, this is, I know. have some too. Yeah. And this is like a couple of years ago, they would have been long Snapped gone. Up. Yeah. They're not moving cause there's, cause they don't fit the, they don't fit the DSO profile and we don't have as many solo buyers out there. It's crazy. Cause I, there's so many more kids graduating dental school. Yeah. But they're going into, they're going to work for the DSO. corporate offices and, and then, you know, with the startups and, and chime in on this, like it used to be you'd start up a practice, three ops, and then you'd grow into four and five. Now these kids are like 12 ops. Build them out. <laughs> yeah. You I, know? I, I, I sometimes I start to sweat when they tell me I that. I know. They're like, I'm put like, four cheers in. I'll buy six more in three months. It's like, what? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and give me a million dollars to buy equipment. Right. And, and you know, and, and I try to discourage startups. Because um, I think that is a really tough road. You can't outmarket a DSO or corporate. Yeah, you just don't have the budget, and you don't have the wherewithal, and you'd have to be a really savvy person. I, I I'm afraid for yeah. our younger colleagues because I like them from a real estate perspective. Yes, though. like if you can find a building with, you know, three or four other tenants, and you become a real estate investor Correct. first, Correct. then you start a little office in Perfect. that building. You have passive income. That's where I like it, but it it's got to go with the real estate. I yeah. agree. So. You, you can't, you can't, and I see this, I have one in particular right now. It's a very small practice with a piece of real estate involved. The real estate's way more expensive than the practice. It's a single tenant building. That's you. I it's have tough. to, it's really tough. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. How do you pay for that? I, I don't think you can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's got to have some delayed sale of the property, something like that. But yeah. um, like Jessica said, it is getting tougher and tougher for yeah. our younger colleagues. And they're faced with other pressures. When I got out of dental school, I owed $45,000. I thought that was the end of the world. You know, that was I a talk, one textbook for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I talk to these That's people now, yeah. and I mean, you do too. When you talk to a buyer, you say, well, okay, how much are you in debt? And they're you know, six, seven, eight hundred thousand. Oh, yeah. I had a couple about three years ago that, that both went to NYU. They came out and they were $1.7 million yeah. in debt. And specialists too. They're, yeah. I mean, they're I mean, how do you, crazy How debt. do you pay that off? A lifetime. Well, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your kids will pay it off for you. Well, yeah. Or, yeah hopefully they will. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I came out with 300000 which almost is 20 years ago. And that's, and, and it was, I, to me, that's bordering on, does it make sense? Right. Six, 700000 I have that philosophical conversation all the time with myself. At what point does that force you to do things that are maybe not in your best interest from a career standpoint? 
like like ethical decisions and ethical clinical decisions, dentistry? Yes, is that or, what you mean? Yeah, and also staying in the corporate side because that's a guaranteed income. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a saying, or I have a, had a saying, I guess it's mine, that if you haven't bought a practice the first seven years you're out of dental school, you're never going to own a practice because you get comfortable. Mm-hmm. Your lifestyle, you know, you start to get used to that money, even though it's 225 240 I mean, whatever the number is, you go, hey, this is guaranteed. I, I know what I've got here. For me to buy a practice now, I've got to take a risk. And, you know, I may have two or three children, I, you know, whatever the it's, story it is. It sets you back, too. Just, oh, yeah. I bought my first practice exactly seven years after I graduated dental So you school. just got in under That's the wire. That's so accurate. Just yeah. under. Well, I bought this about seven years yeah. out of school, too. I, yeah. I, I love, and I'm sure you do, too, I love buyers that have been out four, five, six years. Yeah, me, too. They know the ropes. Um, they also have a track record. Um, they, you know, I don't feel, particularly now, as you said, the trend towards buying larger practices there are some factors with getting people financed if they're really young, but I'm not crazy about somebody buying a million and a half dollar practice if they're two years out of dental school and the most they've ever produced is $200,000 a year. Right. You know, that kind of borders on, is that going to work to me? It can't. Unless I... it, it can. I mean, and, and it does. Sometimes they click over and they do that, but I think you're asking, it's a, it's a big, big risk or a big leap of faith. Oh, yeah. So now that all the young dentist listeners are sweating, thinking they just made the biggest regret I, of their life. I'm sweating. I'm sweating. Like, <laughs> um, I'm done sweating. Wow. <laughs> what are some steps we can take as a solo practitioner to survive in this environment? You know, that's a really good question. And again, uh, I'm old and unfiltered, so I'll give you, I'll give perfectly my opinion. I think the biggest factor we have as individual dentists, the biggest thing we have going for us is that we can control the patient experience much better than a DSO or corporate group can. Mm -hmm. Um, We can control who our staff is to a large extent. Obviously we're in a period right now where staff is moving. You know, there's a lot of, you know, probably topic for another time, hygiene compensation and things like that, that, you know, somebody gets offered $5 more an hour than you're paying them. It's hard to say, no, you got to stay with us. But when it comes to staff, it's not all about money. There are things you can do to take care of your staff so they feel you know, like they are comfortable where you're at. But I think maintaining staff, maintaining the patient relationship, maintaining the patient experience, trying to make sure that the patient experience is great each and every time, I think as individual practitioners, not so much us, but our staff, we tend to be um, a little isolated from that patient experience, what happens. And and we need to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. There's all kinds of things that I do. I make mystery calls to the office. I, uh, you know, sometimes I'll send in mystery patients so they can report back to me what that initial exam was like, um, just so that we're able to report back to a dentist and say, look, this is, you know, what's going on. I had, a, I'll tell you a very interesting story. And this was, this is kind of an old story now. It's about 15 years ago. I had a guy call me and said, I want to sell my practice. And I said, well, that, you know, great. Uh, you know, at that point in time, we, you know, was pre-COVID, so we were meeting, and so, mm-hmm. so I, I, I went out to the office, and I drove by it like three or four times, and finally, I got the address pinned down, I know the address on either side, and I looked, and there's all these trees and everything else, and I kind of looked, and there was a building behind there, and uh, so I said, well, that must be it, I pulled in, and I, you know, he said, come to the back door, and knock on the back door, I did, went in, and we were talking, and I said, you know, he said, you know, I haven't been able to grow, you know, he says, nobody even no sees, one can find you, nobody yeah. can find you, so <laughs> I said to the guy, I said, well, you know, you're pretty, you know, your front of your office is pretty well covered. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, come here. So I made him come outside and I looked at it. He goes, oh my gosh, I never knew. I came in the back door every day for the last 15 mm-hmm. years. And I had him walk through the reception area. He goes, look at the carpet in this place. Look, you know, so as dentists, sometimes we don't understand what a patient sees. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple stuff, but we don't do it. I mean, you know, one of the things I'd like to do in a consulting state is I have the dentist sit in every operatory once a month. Look at the lights. Look at what things are. Does it look clean? Sit in your waiting room. Sit in your waiting room. Uh, You know, have somebody call your office, see what kind of things happen. We can control that. I think that is the number one thing as far as retaining patients. There are things that DSOs and corporates can do that we can't. They're moving towards seven-day-a-week, 12-hour-a-day type things. You can't do that as an individual dentist. So you have to be better, at least in the patient's mind, to keep that patient. Because we're not going to be able to do it based on the level of, or the breadth of service. In other words, that we can't be open 72 hours a week as an individual dentist. And we're probably not going to be able to do it on price because they can do it cheaper than we can. 
more than likely. So if we're going to compete on price, we got a problem. You got to offer them intangible benefits. Like they can text you if they have any questions. You do that, right? Yeah, they have my personal cell phone, so they call or text me immediately. You. And you could have two cell phones yeah. if you're really worried about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, you know, you have your personal one and then your personal your, one. Your bat phone. It's funny. I give out my personal <laughs> number and like, then they don't use it. They, they feel comfortable and they're not. They it's just, call me. it's it's perception. Right. Yeah. My yeah. my father in law was uh, was um, heavily into marketing. Uh, for Hiram Walker, which is a liquor company in Canada. But anyways, he taught me a ton of stuff about marketing. And he, you know, he would, he was a big advocate of perception versus reality. And, you know, he would always say, you know, in dentistry, as he got to know the profession, you know, as he kind of, we talked about it more, he said, you know, it's not a whole lot different than selling liqueurs. He said, it's all about the perception the sizzle, the you know, it's not the steak, it's the sizzle. It's what a patient perceives. And I tell this to the young dentists when I lecture at UD all the time, I say, look, right now you're hundred percent focused on the quality of your margins. How, what's the contour of the tooth? What is the quality of the occlusion? Those are all things that have to be taken care of. Those are all criteria that as dentists, we'd all agree are very important, but you got to understand from a patient's perspective, they don't care about that right. at all until something fails. They're assuming that's being done. They care about how long did it take, how much did it cost, and did it hurt. You have to control those three or at least manage them in a, in a way that's better than the corporates in order to maintain your patients. The last thing you said were how much did it hurt. I'll, I'll see patients from other dentists that the work isn't great, and they say, well, he never hurt me. I had such Absolutely. a great experience for 20 years. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we're always on stage. You know, uh, a good friend of mine told me something many, many years ago, and, and I never actually did it, but it was a good point. He said he wishes that he could put up a sign right over the staff lounge where they kind of went out to the clinical area, and the sign would say, showtime. And I think mm -hmm. that's so true. Um, you know, as much as we try, it's really tough if you're not feeling it to fake it. So you, you, you do have to realize that when you're out there in front of the patients and you have to constantly reinforce this to your staff, it is showtime. You know, they don't care yeah. if your dog just died. They don't. They, they don't care no. if your kid's having problems at school. It, it, they think if you, you know, if your dog just died, you're probably going to do a poor job on him. So, you know, you, we've got to be very good at hiding that. And make it all about them. I used to tell my staff, yeah. every um, treat everyone like a celebrity. Every female is Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> every man is George Clooney. Yeah. I don't, I don't care what they look like. That, that's who they are. Very seldom did they look like when that. When they walk in. <laughs> Me but, included. But, but no. they kind of did. You know, it was like, oh, we're so happy to see you. And people people love that. I mean, I love that. You know, if well, they go do. and ask me how I'm doing. And, well, and, and I had a rule. I don't want to hear them complain. No. <laughs> and I had a rule. Chairside, we never spoke about anything that was not include at least including yeah. the patient. Oh, yeah. If we talked about something that happened to the assistant or myself, or if I said, you know, I was a coach big baseball coach if we talked about something it was kind of like in response to them saying their kid played or yeah. something like that because they don't want to hear it and i see this dentist you're talking oh, yeah. to your system about what you did last night and you know i did this that the other thing and it kind of the patient's just there boy that's that's not a good thing um, i had an assistant that would do that she's like what are you doing this weekend i was like nothing don't talk to me about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> the patient feels like you're not even you're They're not paying attention out. well and, and and we all know as dentists i mean we do concentrate on what we are doing. There's yeah. no non-dentist listening, right? But, I mean, you know, it does get rote. I mean, obviously, you do a two-surface composite a certain yeah. way, but you can't. To, to that patient, that's the only two-surface composite they're getting that day. Yeah. So, you know, you got to make it seem like a big deal to them. I mean, I used to have conversations with my staff all the time. They'd say, wow, she was really tough to deal with. I say, yes, but you know, that may be the only crown she gets in her life. Right. That took 10 years off my life doing it. Right? <laughs> yeah. But you, you can't tell her, boy, you're terrible. You know, I mean, you have to, you know, make that experience special. Yeah, that's so true, though, that when you, if you let the patient know at all they were a hard patient to work on, you lost them forever. It, yeah, and, and, and they're, you know, you they're not coming it, back and their friends aren't coming no, back. But you exactly. don't want it to look too easy. Like, you know, my no, sister, no, no. you know, my sister, Angie, yes. she's an yeah. endodontist. She's, she's like, I can do a root canal in my sleep. I'm sure you know? she can. And, and she's like, but you have to, you know, act like it's, Well, you, you know. know I, I heard a, a, um, a, a saying or at a seminar one time I was at it, and um, it was a very good point. He said, you know, if you're flying an airplane, you don't want to be told that the airline pilot is really just like a glorified bus driver, that it's no big deal. Right. Same thing in the dental office. You don't want to be told that, geez, I could train a monkey to do this. You know, you do have to maintain a certain level of expertise, but because it is easy for us, doesn't mean that it's any less involved or any less or important. important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's so true. So, Pat, um, we're getting up on the hour. Okay. We always ask a question at the end. Top three. So, for this, top three pieces of advice for young dentists when they're looking to purchase a practice. Top three pieces would be, number one, determine if you're cut out for practice ownership. Um, That's a good one. I have a, 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 what I'm dealing with right now, it's very personal. It's a practice that I have a minor uh, minor ownership stake in. Um, we have an associate who is, the practice is, is a very good practice, but he, he says, I want I want to work Monday through Thursday, be done at 5 o'clock, shut the lights off, and not have to worry about anything. And we're a multiple dentist practice. He says, I don't want to play other dentists. To me, I think the question should be, are you cut off for ownership? Because if that's your goal, you're going to be Monday through Thursday, 8 to 5. You had better start thinking about being in some very, very small town where there's no competition. So that would be number one. Think about are you cut off for ownership? Are you willing to do what's necessary to be an owner? And are you willing to be do what's necessary to be an owner in the area you're going to go into? If you're in an area of high competition, you got to think, well, maybe I better ha- I might have to open on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Or I might have to do a couple of evenings. So that would be one. Number two would be to get your ducks in a row. In other words, have your advisors as such set so that when you go in, because today, and Jessica will tell you, you know, if you have a practice that's in a very desirable area, um, it's not uncommon to show that practice on Monday and have an offer for it on Friday. So you got to be ready to move. And that's kind of my, I'm not a type of person, I'm not a type of broker that says, you better move because we're going to get an right. offer. Um, I do try to keep them informed, but also if you show a practice to three people and two of them make an offer and the third one's not ready, they're going to be left out. So you have to start the process somewhere. It's not it's not bad if you're not ready, but understand if you ever want to find one, you're going to have to move fast if it's a very, very beneficial uh, practice. And number three would be to really, really think through what it is you want. One of the problems I'm having right now is that, I'm sure you too, um, I'm going to use this because we're here, unless a practice is within 20 minutes of West Bloomfield, they're not interested. And right. my, my point is that it's a lot harder to find a good practice or a practice that fits your goals than it is to find a good house to live in. So you need to really think that through. If, you're, if your goal is i got to be within 20 minutes of West Bloomfield and I need a practice to a million five netting $700,000 a year that's fully digitized and, and, and paperless, understand that that could take seven years to find right um and and you know and and i think that there's a common misconception amongst buyers is is that you and i both have a list of 32 practices and when they say i'm looking for camp michigan we got five for them to look at doesn't work that way you know you have to really think this through and if you're serious about buying a practice say okay how long am i willing to wait for the quote-unquote perfect Goldilocks practice. Mm-hmm. And there's probably no perfect practice out there. I haven't found one yet. <laughs> and I and I, I like to say I've done this 150 times and I've not seen one. But people yeah. do that. They they put these parameters. They're so strict. And then and then you actually find that and they're like, oh, I don't think about it. It's like, oh, <laughs> I found it. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. I had <laughs> it's one. the holy grail. <laughs> I had one, the holy grail. I found the holy grail for her. And uh, she said, you know, I drove by it. And you know what? I don't like it. Well, no, she didn't even say that. She said, you know, it's a 25-minute drive, and I only want to go 20. Oh, my gosh, get out of here. Drive a little faster. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's what I said. I said, did you you try another way? Right. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, you know, they they need to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's great advice. Yeah. That was, like, so well-polished, those top three. Did you know we were asking top three? No. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about it when you said it. I was thinking, what would they be? But I think those would definitely be my top three. That's amazing. He did a great job with that. Yeah. I yeah. think the most important, you said everything you say was important, but the best thing I can take away is the fit has to be good. Yeah. Without the fit, nothing works. And, yeah. and I like to say that with the fit, everything else falls into place. Yeah. If you find the right fit, the right group, they tend to bond as people. You know, the, the seller and the buyer. I just had one last night um, where I'm not a particularly enamored with the buyer, but the seller is, and there there were some issues trying to fit some of the stuff together, but because they have such a good relationship, such a great fit, so they're able better. to work a lot mm-hmm. of that stuff out that I wasn't getting very far. 
Right. So again, it's that fit is, is really everything. I am a huge proponent of the buyer and seller meeting early on. Me too. Um, I like to get them together without me actually, but, um, I agree. Get together and cause if they need me in the middle, I'm not going to be there the well, day after they, they buy just, it. Yeah. Then they just talk to you the whole time and I'm a talker and so and are me you. Too. So yeah. Yep. Like, yep. Yep. But, um, yeah, that's, that's important. And one of the things I took away that you didn't really say, but I think as dentists, I think we should diversify. Like the fact that you, you have a lot of roles in dentistry. Oops, I lost my microphone. Um, you know, you're a dentist, practicing dentist, business owner, obviously, consultant, practice transition specialist, um, forensic dentist. It's, you know, you've really. I, I think you're absolutely you've really right. expanded yeah, this and, career for yourself. And a lot of that for me was interest. You yeah. know, was 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 something else. I think economically going forward, it's going to be an issue because like you said, I think you have to be diversified in my mm-hmm. day. A dentist was a dentist was a dentist. Yep. There were no other options. You owned your own practice or you retired. There are going to be a ton of options going forward. Yeah. And I think you need to be position yourself to whatever way that when, when this bubble bursts, whatever that looks like, you can kind of do everything. Cause it wouldn't it be ideal if you say, you know, I don't really like the cl- way clinical dentistry is gone. I can't really own my practice doing that. But I could work two days a week as that and do something else and still provide for myself and really be happier. Yeah. And do practice appraisals. That's yeah, a yeah. thing now. Like there are, there are so many different things. There's so many things. different things. Absolutely. But yeah. It was we, great talking oh to my, you. I enjoyed it. So enjoyed much it. fun. Can we bring you back yeah. and talk about non-clinical pathways in dentistry? A- a- absolutely. That's Happy a good idea. That. That'd be amazing. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'm trying to retire. <laughs> hey, Vince, <laughs> I'm looking at you, and uh, buddy, you got a ways to go. I think that's that's good though, just for people who oh, are. Yeah. I, I do. I, you, you know, know? And I, I know people ask me when they should start thinking about selling their practice, and I say the day you buy it. Yeah. You, you know, you should start having a plan. I mean, you don't mm-hmm. have to have everything scoped that out. The plan's going to change over it, time. It, it too. is, but yeah. you got to kind of. I think what I talk to, and again, you guys are younger, but a lot of my colleagues and my classmates are just kind of whistling, going along, and they don't realize all these changes are occurring. Uh And five years from now, their practice may be non-saleable. And maybe economically that's not going to hurt them. Some of them it will. But I think psychologically, if they've got to abandon their practice or just write their patients' notes, I think they're going to be devastated. Oh, that's heartbreaking. That's that's happening. It is. happening. Wow. Then we're definitely bringing it back for that. Okay, I love to. I just had a heart attack. Yeah, I know. Um, so on a, on a personal note, where's one, your AED? It's fully updated in the back. <laughs> okay. um, me and my wife are trying to practice more gratitude in our life and it's been improving. And I want to say how grateful me and Jessica are that you took an hour out of your day to come and talk to us. I, I, I was happy yeah. to do it. And like I said, dentistry has been very good to me. And I, I, I really feel strongly, uh, even though, like I said, the old and unfiltered jokingly, I'll tell you what I think, no matter what. But I really feel strongly that I would like to do anything I could to help these younger dentists because I think their pathway to success is so much more difficult than mine. Is. I agree. There's mm-hmm. so many more issues they need to to travel and and, and need to work on, um, and and be aware of. Um, mm-hmm. It's tough. It's going to be tough. In they're the next climbing years. a steeper hill. I it's think. it's not it's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination. But mm-hmm. they're going to have to be. I I always say when it comes to my generation is. We could be the dumbest, greenest, whatever, and we could still be successful. I think now that's not the case. You, you can have to be fairly sophisticated mm-hmm. and know what's going on. Yeah, that's good. Well, you want to sign us off? Yeah, this is uh, Toothpaste, the podcast, episode 26. That's a wrap with um, Dr. Houlihan, the Houlihan Group. Do you have a website? Yes, I do. The Houlihan Group.com. Houlihan Group.com. All right. Well, go. thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed being here.